So this morning we're going to continue with our series on Acts. Last week we took on a piece of controversial text in Acts chapter 15, where the church had come to a theological crossroad. With all the Gentile believers coming into the church, the Jews were beginning to ask a hard question. What about us and what about our customs? The more hardline Jews were calling for a response that we in the modern church age call legalism, a teaching that suggests that the cross must be supplemented with the law in order to create a complete experience of salvation. The discussion over this took place in what we know as the First Jerusalem Council, and the outcome of that gathering saw the establishment of a new line of doctrinal thought, and we learned about it last week, the doctrine of grace. And this was the understanding that both Jews and Gentiles are lawbreakers, and they're saved only by the cross. From here on, the message of the gospel was to be taught as faith in Christ alone. The work of the cross alone atones for our sin. If you put a plus to your gospel message, you are essentially communicating that the cross is not sufficient for our salvation, when the truth is, it's the only source. We also saw that the church leadership saw fit to put a few guidelines in place. Now, this was for the Gentile church to learn to conduct itself a bit different to the world around them, but also for the Jews and Gentiles to be able to coexist with a degree of mutual respect within the church. And I summed them up for the 2013 Wangaratta audience with two thoughts and three challenges overall. First up, it was keep Jesus as your number one thing. Second, pursue moral purity. And three, make sure that what we share about the gospel clearly teaches Jesus alone, not a message of Jesus plus. Now, like every other season we've read about in Acts so far, the church is propelled back into action after this last time of unsettling. The enemy will always look to thwart the work of the church. And our diligence in making that one accord mentality a priority is going to ensure that we can weather any unsettling and we can resolve it quickly and we can keep getting on with the task of winning the lost. And after beating their last hurdle, Luke's account now takes us into a fresh, new church initiative. How many know that we all have the work of evangelism to do? We read in Ephesians that Jesus gave that special breed of evangelists to the church uh, and their purpose is to build it up and to equip it. That's what edifying means. But Paul also teaches the individual in Timothy, and many scholars believe by extension this is told to all individual believers that he is to do the work of an evangelist. In other words, we've got that Billy Graham sort of evangelism, and there is that you in your local context, personal evangelism, that needs to be carried out for the kingdom of God to grow. Uh, There are the big guys, but people that you and I know are probably never going to get face to face with them. But they will be face to face with you. That's how the two different ways sort of work. A number of weeks ago, in fact, it was way back in October 7, I did a message around the DNA of an evangelist. And we have Philip the Evangelist as our model in question at the time. As we explored that setting, we found that people who were effective in evangelism evangelism, had four traits about them. They were grounded in their theology. They had skill and appropriate engagement. They operated under Holy Spirit empowerment. And they had the full support and the encouragement of their local church community. Incidentally, all four of those things can be achieved over the course of the Alpha program when we start that with this Wednesday. 
the Bible portion we're about to explore expands on some of those things. And I've called this message today, The Mindset of Mission. There are some things that make up the right frame of mind to engage in the many mission fields around us. And we'll begin to explore these by catching our text at the end of Acts 15. Let's pick it up here. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, but also, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Mission begins with the right heart for the field at hand. Mission begins with the right heart for the field at hand. Let's go. Let's visit. Let's nurture. Let's get out of our comfort and get down and dirty with the people whom Jesus has sent us to reach. That's exactly the heart of Paul as he instigates this next missionary venture. There was something in the heart of Paul that knew God had placed a region and people group on his heart, and he needed to get face to face with them. That's the heart of missionaries even today, of the Sinclairs in Africa who, are, you know, who, who have family here in church today, of the Roberts over in Alice Springs, the mission, one of the missions that we like to support as a church. And the list goes on. You know, it should be the heart of me and Jen in the city of Wangaratta, and believe me, it is. And it should also be the heart of all of us within our missionary context. And we all have one, either in our work, in our schools, our families, our community groups, the different things that we're involved in in our life. And from our text, we see it needs to be something that burns on our heart personally, not the collective heart of the masses necessarily. We see here that Paul and Barnabas both acknowledge the pull in their spirits to go. But it quickly becomes clear that the pull in their spirits is leading them to different destinations. Paul is looking up to head up the coast to his home region of Cilicia, where Tarsus is located, and hopefully brand new, break new ground beyond. Barnabas is looking across the Mediterranean to his homeland of Cyprus. Paul has a team in mind that doesn't include Mark, because he had a history of desertion. Barnabas wants his cousin Mark to come along because he's done some growing up since then, he feels. Seeing things differently in mission does not always mean disunity is brewing. It just may be that the Lord is setting things up differently to, uh, differently to how we as mere human beings see it. In fact, in Antioch that day, seeing things differently meant that the church was able to actually double its missionary thrust into Gentile lands. After the vision morning we did on December 9, I received an email and I was asked if we would consider doing another outreach initiative that actually was something that I hadn't announced and it wasn't on my personal radar. Now, I'm going to say to that person, I don't want to embarrass him, you know who you are. Go ahead and investigate it. Look into it. You're not wrong for thinking that way and for investigating that. Maybe that's a mission field that Jesus is putting on your heart. Just let me know how I can cheer you on and help you along with that way. It might not be on my heart personally, but then again, it might not be my personal, personal missionary thrust to lead. If it's on your heart, it's there for a reason. 
It doesn't make you wrong. It makes you passionate about something. And that's a pretty awesome way to be. In fact, it even multiplies the effect of the church and the community. If we just stick to the plan that we have on the last page of our website, the four values, you know, that's enough for me as a, as a pastor to lead and do. But if there's more in our heart, let's go ahead and do it. Jesus did. Jesus put that on your heart. Let's go ahead with it. A good example of this is already in place is what we do with loaves and fishes. I have to say that the whole social welfare thing is something I, I've seen a lot of abuse and, and I see genuine, loads of genuine cases, but I've seen a lot of abuse. So at times, I, I know I can sort of get a bit cynical about it and stuff, but we have passionate people in this church who do represent our church and actually get amongst that, and I respect the way that people do that. So like I said, it might not be my heart, but it is, if it's your heart, go ahead and do it. It takes an individual cause and an individual call, and that's what we like to see in the life of the church. That's awesome. The double up here also led to the restoration of a believer as well. Barnabas was able to take John, to take John Mark with him. And the text tells us that they set sail for Cyprus. In the first missionary journey, Mark had been helpful in his travels through that region. But as they got up to the mainland, into Paul's hometown, we read that Mark took off back to Mum's house in Jerusalem. There is even widespread belief among scholars that he might have even taken offence at the Gentiles coming to faith in such high numbers and that he was one of the frontrunners of the cause of last week's legalist uh, argument that was coming out. I want to say this. You're never too far gone to get back into your missionary calling. You may have blown your stack at work thinking I've damaged it, that's it, my reputation shot. You might have done something silly like have a few more drinks than you should have at Christmas. You may have made a mistake that got somewhat public. There are many ways that we can feel like we've deserted our missionary post. But I've got good news for you. We may write ourselves off, but Jesus does not. Jesus is in the restoration game. We see in our text that although Mark might not have been cut out for the new ground that Paul wanted to explore... He was cut out for the field that he was once effective in. The key here is that Barnabas saw the potential and Mark had the desire. Mark could have lingered in Jerusalem or he could have even sat back on the back row at Antioch. Instead, he got back on his horse and he went to what he knew he could do. some point, I'm going to preach on John Mark and his life because there is such a, a tightly interwoven story throughout the New Testament that is just awesome. But that's for another time. Now, mission begins with the right heart and the right mind. Go, seek, nurture the place or people that God has reserved just for me. Starts with the right heart. Now, let's keep reading and going into chapter 16, starting at verse 1. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke, spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along for the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. So we start with the right heart, and now mission requires the right cultural makeup for the field at hand. As we read here, we, we, we see that Paul had selected his team for some very good reasons for this particular trip. He starts by leaving Antioch with Silas, and we just read that. 
Silas was a great companion for Paul in traveling throughout that region. He was a fellow Jew, and he was a guy with that similar old school Hebraic leaning that Paul had. But more notably, he was actually a Roman citizen like Paul as well. So logistically, this was perfect. He even had a Roman name to operate under in his travels, and you read about him in Paul's letters under the name Sylvanus. He was also fluent in speaking Greek. Silas had served the church in Jerusalem and in Antioch as a recognized prophet. The role of a prophet was always to bring the word of God to the people, while a priest would stand in intercession and bring the people to God. For the mission field at hand, Silas was a perfect fit. He was a man of godly heritage, but also a man of the people. He was a man with a language of the people, and a man with a prophetic message for that people. Then, in their travels, they find another treasure. As they return to that backwater of Lystra, that's the superstitious town we talked about a couple of weeks ago, they discover a great young man named Timothy. 2 Timothy 1.5 tells us that he had a very rich Jewish heritage. His mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois had lived very devout Jewish lives. And it is believed that one or both of these were converted on Paul's first missionary journey. Further on in 2 Timothy 3, we see that Timothy had been raised in the law of the Lord from his earliest days. And our text today tells us that he'd grown up into a great young man where his godliness was known throughout his own little village, his own little spot, but also some distance up the road in Iconium. That's like a guy in Chilton having a great reputation here. Like That's a pretty cool thing. And it wouldn't surprise me, everyone knows everyone around here. <laughs> but Timothy had a little secret. Jewish law placed the religious heritage on the side of the mother. And in this case, that seemed quite effective because it was his mother's influence that won out in his adult years. His Jewish roots then set him up to receive Christ also. Because as we talked about last week, his conversion was a natural fit for his established God mindset. But Greek custom placed emphasis on the leadership and religion in the home on the father. And Timothy's father was a Greek, a Gentile. In Lystra there was no synagogue, so the Jewish authority pushing the letter of the law was somewhat lax. And Timothy passed through the cracks in one of the key elements of Jewish faith in men. Now in light of last week's sermon... That's not a salvation issue. And his liberty to remain that way had just been fought for by Paul and had been endorsed in writing by the Church of Jerusalem. As a Christian, he was under the grace of the cross and he wasn't under the burden of the law. The local priest, he had every right to go, I am a follower of Jesus, put the scalpel away. Now Paul saw the influence this godly young man could wield. But there was a cultural blockage in play that would hinder his effectiveness. To the Jews, he was a nice fellow, but he was an apostate. He had the faith connection, but not the circumcision to truly identify as one of them. To the Gentiles, he was slightly odd in that he was caught up in that whole minority group Jewish thing. In other words, as God-loving and as God-honoring as he was, he was actually not a good fit for reaching his local culture for the Lord. 
he was actually somewhat socially inept for the task of mission that he was called to do. Paul had paved the way in his previous journeys and had established a now proven method of operation in all the cities he visited. He started with the synagogues to find sympathetic ears and then he would hit the marketplace. He would always do it in that order. If Timothy was going to take part and relate in that environment, he unfortunately needed to allow a part of himself to be cut off. Timothy had potential but was required to make a cultural adjustment in order to be effective as a minister in his environment. Your personal mission field has a culture about it. We need to be like Silas and be able to speak its language. That means discarding some of the Christianese that we've been growing up in, you know? It means not assuming, not assuming that people know what you're on about. It even means nowadays not even assuming that people know who Jesus Christ is. That's the honest truth. That's becoming a greater thing. And like Silas, our role is to have something to say to that environment. Something living and active from God. Dare I say, something prophetic. And like Timothy, we need to adapt to the culture that we're ministering to. Now, I came to faith in a very legalistic church. In my young years, I came to Christ as a young teenager and I was told to throw away all my non-Christian cassettes. What are you listening to that devil music John Farnham for? I even saw men having to give account for why they took their family to a bistro when alcohol was served there. Like, what are their options, McDonald's? A long time ago... I cut off my problem with entering a pub and began going there on a Friday afternoon with work colleagues. I also got a lot of my CDs back, but that's another matter for another time. (laughs) I can say that with conviction, that simple action broke down many barriers to speaking into the lives of my work colleagues. I may have known their language and even had something from God to say, but I only got to say those things when I got to sit down in their cultural setting. Now, I'm not suggesting we go find drinking buddies this week. But I am saying this. As believers, we we tend to stick to our own thing and our own culture. And then we expect the world to actually come and step into our culture. True evangelism from Acts onwards has always occurred the other way around. What things do we need to cut off? What personal adjustments do we need to make in order to make that cultural connection with our personal mission field? Timothy had to make a very real and painful decision. He had to have a surgical procedure, literally, in order to go ahead with him. We're just cutting off a him or two. I know which one I would prefer. (laughs) Go to verse 6. Of chapter 16. Paul and his companions traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. 
after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So mission starts with the right heart. Mission continues with cultural adjustment. And now mission finally requires being in your right place. Not the one I'm going to lay out for us, not the one that I think we should be doing, but what is your right place for your missionary experience? We read here that they have done what Paul initially set out to do, and that is deliver the findings of the Jerusalem Council to the churches which they had established in their previous travels. We see that it's been a source of strength and a source of clarity for the churches, and the legalistic believers have been put back in their box somewhat. Well, they're now feeling compelled to go further into new territory, but as yet the itinerary has not been set yet. From Pisidian Antioch, which is likely their, their last stop before doing anything new, that's as, far, that's as far in as they got in their first previous trip. From there, there's actually a major highway, the Via Sebast, which goes southwest towards Colossae and ultimately Ephesus, which was a major regional center. Ephesus was a, was a huge major thing and eventually became the center of the church for a while, going into 90 AD and that sort of stuff under the apostleship of John. But it's seen here that the Holy Spirit was actually stopping them. So they hit the northern road, and get within reach of Bithynia and towns such as Nicaea along the strategic Black Sea region. And the text tells us that the Spirit of Jesus constrains them from going east from there as well. From that point, the only option is to head west. And they hit Troas on the Aegean Sea and they stay put and wait for the Lord's direct. Now what's interesting at this point is that the only word from God that the travelers had received time and again seems to be no the Lord stopped us the Lord prevented us the Lord caused us to not do that this would have been a bit of a tough and frustrating time for them but finally in Troas God says yes it's here that Paul gets a vision across the sea to minister across in, in, in Macedonia that'll show up in next week's map and finally, the church is about to set up its second beachhead on European soil. Now, some of you are wondering what the first one is. If you don't know already, I'll tell you in a couple of weeks. It's here that a couple of things become clear. One, in this passage, God has deliberately been referred to in his Trinitarian form. That's a pretty big thing in itself. The Holy Spirit is referred to in verse 6. The Holy Spirit stopped them. God, the Holy Spirit. In verse 7, it's the Spirit of Jesus, God. And in verse 10, it's God the Father. That's a pretty cool little thing right there. But secondly, that the disciples had a divinely appointed place to be. It would be in that appointed place that their ministry would flourish. And we read thus far, between Pisidian Antioch and Troas, they really haven't done a lot. It's only when they get across the Aegean Sea that we see some truly great things occur. When God ordains our personal field of mission, we first become aware of that because God prepares, prepares our heart. He puts that desire within us to go like these disciples experienced. He then gives us the wisdom to go and get ourselves culturally ready. 
And he gives us a prophetic voice to bring to our field of mission. And after that, he commissions us for service in our field of mission. We find that right place and we flourish. Until we find it, we may get a couple of no's along the way and it might be a bit frustrating trying to bump into the right spot before Jesus sort of stops us. But rest assured that Jesus is leading us all towards an effective place to do the work of evangelism. He has a mission field set aside for us all. And if we wait on him, he will lead us to whatever and wherever that is. About 14 months ago, I was bumper stopped all over the country. I was in Sydney looking at, a, at, at Perth. The Spirit said no. I was looking north in Queensland. The Spirit said no. Even though I was standing at one of the beaches there looking at whales. Going, but God. And he's saying no. Finally we come here. And it was a very resounding yes. I just love what Jesus does. That's, just, that's not to big note what we're doing here. I know Jesus has great plans for this church, without, uh, regardless of Jen and me. But you know what? Jesus leads. And, and if you walk in that leading, you step into a blessed time as you do that. It's time to draw this bit to a close. And we're going to start looking at some great things next week. We're going to look at, at, uh, at Macedonia and that, that man that was begging for him to come over. I'm begging to find out what happens. But let's allow the Lord to speak a bit. I'm going to ask a few concluding questions here. And I guarantee you might not have all these answered right now. But maybe this could be something you can explore in your own devotional time. When you're praying, you can ask these same questions to the Lord. You can pray for these things to be revealed. Question one is this. Let's close our eyes. Let's, let's, let's even start now. Let's get in that attitude of prayer. What's in my heart? What's burning in my heart? Is there a compelling within me to go somewhere right now? Is there a desire to get up close and personal with an unreached person or group at all? God can't use us unless that's burning within us personally. Maybe some of us need to ask the Lord to restore that to us because you can really only do evangelism from a position of personal conviction. Paul had to write to Timothy and instruct him to fan to flame the gift of God that was in him. Maybe that's the case with us today as well. How will I reach them culturally? Is there a part of me that I need to let go of in order to reach the people around me? A few years ago in Sydney, my friend Simba, whom you all met in, the, in October, performed at a Baptist youth event. And we noticed a number of grandparents buying his music to give to the grandparents. There was thousands of people there and they loved it. And, and it, was a, it was actually an adult conference that had a youth component. And it was grandparents buying his CDs. I thought that was really cool. They didn't have to listen to it or act all gangster when they handed it over, trying to put on a show. All they did was push their personal intolerance to one side in order to do something practical and effective. I'm not suggesting anything over the top. I'm merely suggesting that we be tolerant when the culture around, around us 
is different to our own. That principle is true between generations, but it's also true between work colleagues and schoolmates and all sorts of contexts of life. What cultural changes and adaptions do I need to make? What do we need to make as a church to allow our collective mission to occur? And three, am I willing to let Jesus speak to me and highlight what I should make my mission field? I dare say that God will make it easy and accessible. He just probably, with many of us here, given the demographic, he's probably not going to send you to Africa or India. Or will he? He's probably going to send you to a cluster of kids in your schoolyard, fellas. Or a handful of machine operators at work, or a section of your office. Or a portion of your family members. Or a section of your social interaction. In Perth, one of the larger churches has a sign set up as you leave the car park. You are now entering your mission field. As we enter this year with loads of opportunities, will you enter yours as the Spirit leads? Let's pray 